How's it going, guys? Um, why don't we open our Bibles real quick to the book of Ephesians, and we'll get in there in just a second. Ephesians, if you have no idea where that's at, you're more than welcome to take a look at your table of contacts. That's totally allowable. No shame in that. Um, book of Ephesians. If you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We have some uh, ushers that would love to get you guys a Bible. And as you guys are opening to Ephesians chapter 6, um, before I jump in, I want a quick little announcement. Um, next week, we're going to be doing uh, what we're calling an all-church family huddle. Um, basically, it's an all-church family get-together to connect, connect on some of the things that we have going on. Uh, we've been kind of sharing with you guys over the past several months that basically the, mil- the building that we've been meeting in here right now uh, will be coming to an end. We've been in this building for a little over five and a half years or so, something like that. Uh, we've been able to, by God's grace, have this spot. We've always had long-term desires to kind of build out and uh, get our children's classrooms uh, more suitable whatnot for what we have, uh, and yet, unfortunately, um, due to some circumstances, which I won't go into right now, um, we're, we're not going to be able to be in here for much longer. So uh, we know that this season's coming to a close for us. So what that meant is uh, we needed to find a new place for our church family to gather. Um, so we've been really, we felt, first of all, we felt compelled to mobilize our church family to really pray, and uh, for all of you that have prayed and uh, contributed in that and praying, and have continued to continue to pray, please keep praying. Um, we also, at the same time, while we pray, I want to say thank you to all of you that have been invested in praying. Um, and well, at the same time, our church leaders have really worked really hard to exhaust every potential lead that we can find throughout all San Luis Obispo to try to figure out where we can meet. We've looked in the schools, we've looked in the other uh, warehouse space, other locations, other churches. We've literally looked at every single resource that we could find. Um, there's one spot, really, really kind of boils down to one spot that seems to be kind of viable for us. And so we're actually going to be meeting, that's where we're going to be having the meeting at. It's, um, it's an Assemblies of God church. It's over off of a street called Sierra Romaldo. And uh, you guys can get information. All this information will be available on our website. So um, what we're going to be doing is meeting there at 4 o'clock um, next week. So it'll be about two hours. So just kind of figure two hours. And our aim is to really kind of bring you guys up to speed and kind of share with you guys a little bit about what's been happening with regard to that. Um, and then it will allow some time for you guys to kind of ask some questions uh, and then really just spend some time praying. And really, finally, most importantly, is uh, we'll have a really good time because every gathering is always better with food. And uh, we're going to be having, encouraging you guys to bring some of your best desserts, like pie, um, so that we can also make this a really fun time to get together. And uh, we really have some exciting things that we're excited to kind of share with you guys about. Uh, we believe that God's been really faithful. And, um, and, and if things kind of play out the way that we're, we think that maybe they're going to play out, it's going to be phenomenal. Uh, you know, God just blowing our minds. And uh, we're excited to kind of share that with you guys. Um, we, we still believe it's, it's not like anything just kind of uh, came down from heaven. Um, we still believe that it's going to take praying and uniting together as a church family and moving forward together as a church family. Um, you know, I mean, we have a re- very relatively young church, and a lot of times the way churches kind of function is that um, everything gets run from the top, where, where really everything is done by a select group of people that get paid big bucks and no one really knows too much who they are. Um, and, and even though we do have a, a, a group of people that uh, work really hard, at the same time, we cannot function as a, as a church without really the, the larger spread of our church family working together. It's one of the reasons why we have uh, needs for volunteers, like children's ministry, needs for volunteers, people to help out on Sunday morning. So 
uh, needs for you guys to really kind of be a part of how we move forward um, in terms of trying to figure out and discerning God's plan for us as a church community and our place here in San Luis Obispo. We really believe God has a great purposes, um, that God has a future for our church. Uh, we, we believe that God's done amazing things in our church family uh, in years past. He's doing things right now in the present, and we trust that God has great plans for the future. And so uh, it does really entail your involvement. So um, passivity uh, is, is, is going to be very challenging for you if you want to be a passive observer within this church. We really want to challenge you to not be that, to be someone who's active, someone who cares, someone who's not apathetic towards things that are going on. It's one of the reasons why we're having this. So um, definitely please make it a point to come out to that next week. Um, if you have little kids, you're more than welcome to bring them. We won't have any type of child care, um, but the space is, is really great for families and whatnot, so you're more than welcome to just kind of bring them along. Um, if you feel as if they're too young to where it will be very challenging, maybe distracting, um, then uh, maybe one of your spouses can and stay at home and watch them, whatever, and maybe you can come. But uh, we would, that's fine. We're, you're more than welcome to bring them all, and it's totally fine. Uh, there's some classrooms and whatnot that you can um, uh, dock out into if you need to. So, and if you want to figure out what to bring, um, just bring something really sweet and good. I mean, preferably homemade. It's always the best. Um, I like macaroons, um, and I really love pie. Those are just my personal favorites. So, um, you guys can um, use that as a springboard and kind of figure out what you want. Um, anyways, um, yeah, so hope to see you guys there next week at 4 o'clock. And by the way, as well, uh, this obviously may not really necessarily impact you guys per se, but maybe you know people that go to the evening service. Uh, that starts at 7. We're actually going to be doing the evening service there. Uh, so if you know anybody that goes to the evening service, encourage them to make sure that they know that's going to be there next week. So, again, next week at 4 o'clock. So... Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're at. In fact, uh, today you guys are happy. Hopefully, maybe you'll be happy to know this is the very last message in a very long series throughout the entire book of Ephesians. So probably about a little over a year ago, uh, last January, we actually started uh, the book of Ephesians, and we've gone through every chapter, every verse. Uh, We've listened, we've heard, we've uh, imbibed the message of Ephesians, and uh, hopefully it's been beneficial and helpful for you and your understanding of who God is. Hopefully it's shaped or maybe even reshaped your understanding of who God is. That's the hope um, when we study God's word, when we read the Bible. Uh, the aim is not just information. The aim is Jesus. Um, it's easy to read the Bible to just get information. It's easy to read the Bible just to uh, get uh, content in order to win arguments, uh, to be not very nice when it comes to family gatherings, and you're the one that has all the Bible answers, and you're really rude. The aim of understanding the Bible is Jesus. So our hope is that as we went through the book of Ephesians that you, you discovered, you found, God revealed himself to you uh, in, in grace and truth and, and peace. And this is really kind of for the most part the message that Paul speaks to us. So what I want to do is I want to read Ephesians chapter 6. We'll pick it up at verse 21. We'll read to the very end of chapter, uh, of the very uh, end of the chapter. And real quick before we jump in. So when we finish this, uh, we'll be going into the next several weeks heading up to Easter. So what we'll do over the next three weeks on Sunday mornings is we'll kind of take a look at uh, a series. It'll be sort of just a brief little mini-series connected to the life of Jesus. Um, Easter traditionally is a time in which the church focuses upon the resurrection of Jesus. Good Friday, which is a couple days before uh, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, is when we commemorate and remember the death of Jesus, and we will also have a Good Friday service 
It'll be 12 o'clock here, so if you have never been to a Good Friday service, we invite you to come to that. Uh, Easter Sunday, we'll be actually meeting at the PAC, which means that all of our services will only have one uh, service, so every service that we have will actually be condensed, consolidated into one. It'll be at the PAC. Most of you guys, I'm sure, already know where that's at. Um, and what I would challenge you to think about is begin to think about who you would invite to join with you, to come on out to participate, to be part of that service, that opportunity with you. Uh, the PAC's awesome because it's one of those places that anybody and everybody would be happy to go because it has padded seats and has armrests. It's awesome. If you've never been to the PAC, it's amazing. And it's one of those locations that people are not intimidated by. So anybody and everybody can, can, can invite someone to come, and most people you'll find uh, may be actually eager and willing to come with you to enter into a place like that. And the opportunity, the reason why it's great is because they have an opportunity to hear the gospel, to hear about Jesus. So you guys have people in your lives that will never set foot in church unless uh, they are given an invitation, perhaps. And one of the reasons maybe God's put you in their lives is to be that person. So think about, pray about that. I know sometimes it can be a little bit scary to invite or ask someone uh, to come to something like that, but begin to pray. That's where God sometimes will push back some of the fears that we have and allow us to have a boldness to invite people like that. So, but over the next three weeks, what we'll do once we finish the book of Ephesians, we'll focus on really the life of Jesus because we figured um, the week before Easter Sunday is typically what we call Palm Sunday. It's when we celebrate, remember uh, the coming of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. It's a focus specifically primarily upon the kingship of Jesus. And so we'll kind of take a look at a little bit of a themed series looking at the life of Jesus coming up to his death then ultimately to his resurrection. And finally, after Easter, we'll come into a brand new series uh, beginning right after Easter uh, looking at the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, This is something we've not uh, specifically done in a very long time, um, but we want to spend some weeks, some months actually really delving in and asking the question, who is the Holy Spirit? And why is he important? Why is he significant? to our life. And what's great about this is it actually kind of dovetails into another historical landmark within the church calendar uh, called Pentecost. So 50 days after Easter is a very significant uh, season in the life of the church called Pentecost. It's the giving of the Holy Spirit. So this will be a time frame in which we'll go from looking at the life of Jesus to then looking at the life of the Holy Spirit and how he wants to work in our lives as a church, as a community here in San Luis Obispo, or in South County, or North County, wherever God plants you, so that we can be effective, so that we can live and portray and communicate and show forth the gospel, the good news of our great God through our lives, through what we do, through our jobs, through being good moms and dads and neighbors and whatever it is that God's called us to in our lives. Because every one of us have different vocations, different callings, and different giftings in different locations which God has planted us. But we want to be faithful to whatever that looks like. So... That's a little bit of a roadmap as to what we'll be covering over the next uh, several months. But let's focus on the book of Ephesians. We'll wrap this up this morning and uh, take a look at what Paul has to say to us in God's Word. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. I'll read, then I'll pray, then we'll get to work. So that you may know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister of the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that, we may, and that he may encourage your hearts. Verse 23 says, Peace be to you, brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you who, uh, who love 
and to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. God, we ask you right now that you would help our minds understand and make sense of what was just read here, and God, that we would be able to understand that your word as it comes to life and the larger picture, God, that we would not just simply uh, walk away with content and information, but that we would walk away with catching a snapshot of who Jesus is. God, you give life. And we're people that, that long for life. We want to live. And God, yet we are also very well aware of the fact that there are always hindrances to our really living, truly living. Things that push down, things that weigh down, things that corrupt, things that defile. And then our desires, God, so oftentimes are misleading. They take us down paths in which they promise us much, but at the end, God, we find ourselves always broken. And you're a God that always calls us, reminds us to come back to you, to come back home, to be restored, to be made whole. So God, right now we want to give you our hearts, our thoughts, our mind, our energy, and ask God that you would reshape our understanding of who you are. Give us a glimpse of who you are, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Obviously, this is uh, kind of a conclusion of the entire letter. So with that, I want to backtrack a little bit because uh, in some ways, um, what we're doing in reading the book of Ephesians, we're basically reading someone else's mail um, um, in a sense. It's like uh, we're reading someone else's piece of mail and information that was actually given to another group of people. So it may be helpful to kind of back up a little bit and to kind of understand a little bit about what's happening here. So there's a guy by the name of Paul. Most of you guys already know who Paul is. He was what was called an apostle. Apostle simply means sent out one. And so Paul basically became an apostle. But prior to Paul's becoming an apostle, he basically for the most part was what, uh, he was a persecutor of the church. He hated Christians, in other words. Paul actually had it out to crush and ruin and destroy Christianity. That was his aim. Um, to kind of put it into a modern-day context, Paul would have been equivalent to someone that worked for ISIS. Paul would have been an ISIS soldier who absolutely was committed to uh, religious side, if that's even a word, to crush any opposing uh, religious form that was not consistent with his own very strict understanding of what uh, Judaism was. And so Christianity was viewed basically as a threat to Judaism. So Paul had it in his heart to go out and crush, dominate, and destroy, and remove any threat to his very strict form of Judaism. So when Paul was on a journey out to a particular city to crush the Christians and to arrest them, um, Paul basically was described as being apprehended, this bright light. Paul had this absolutely dramatic conversion experience where it knocked him off his horse. Paul basically is blind for a couple of days. Uh, He has this miraculous uh, recovery and healing, and all of a sudden his eyes are open. And what happens is Paul becomes this absolutely devout follower of Jesus. So Paul basically, from that point forward, devoted his energy and his time and his life and everything that he had learned in his heart and his mind up until that point to basically going around and establishing little communities of Jesus followers. Uh, These little communities we would call later churches. These were little gatherings, little communities of people that were devoted to, committed to following Jesus, that were disciples of Christ. That's That's what Paul would go around. So Paul basically would be equivalent to kind of a a, a church planner. He was going around from 
city to city, from place to place, from location to location, from village to village, entering into these places, in some cases, many of them, just cold turkey. He didn't know anybody there. He just walks in, and because Paul was uh, associated with Judaism, he was a rabbi. So think of it this way, Paul basically had his PhD in teaching. So Paul can walk into any uh, little synagogue, which was a Jewish outpost throughout the Roman uh, Empire. This is uh, in league with what was typically called the diaspora, which the Jews were basically dispersed. That's where we get the word diaspora from. They were dispersed throughout the entire Roman Empire. And so Paul would actually go to these various outposts called synagogues attributed to Judaism throughout the Roman Empire, and he would walk in there. And Paul would basically begin to share with the people, hey, guys, I'm a Jew. Uh, I, I, I worship the God of Abraham uh, like you do. But then Paul would then begin to unpack for them and show them that God was actually faithful to Abraham. God was faithful to the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by and through a person that came, that was crushed, more specifically crucified, and rose again. And Paul would basically present to them, share with them, that God was faithful to his promises. And those in those little communities who believed that message, trusted Jesus, would basically then form these little communities. So you'd imagine um, there are people in the synagogues that obviously didn't like Paul because they basically viewed Paul as stealing people and taking flock from his community. So Paul was always making enemies everywhere he would go. But at the same time, Paul was also developing or building these little communities called churches everywhere he would go. So Paul was constantly on the move. Paul was never one of those guys that would settle down. A lot of uh, scholars believe that Paul was not married. No, nobody really knows exactly what happened at that particular juncture in Paul's life that uh, disallowed him to be married or maybe lost his wife. No one really knows that for sure. But Paul traveled a lot. So when Paul would go into a community, plant a church, he would leave at some point afterwards. But what Paul would do is he always maintained a heart and a love and a compassion for the churches that he planted. So one of the ways by which Paul would keep in contact and community with these people is he would write letters. Now, this is really intriguing to me because... What Paul would do in regards to writing these letters was kind of fascinating because it was not as easy as writing letters is today. Back in the ancient world, they basically had three different ways by which they would write these letters, one of which was on different types of materials, three different types of materials. One was called papyrus, one was called vellum, and one was called parchment. And all three of these various forms of writing material were actually very costly, uh, very expensive to make. And then once you made them, um, you, you basically had to preserve them and ensure that they would make it from point A to point B. But what I love about this is that Paul basically recognized that, among other things, like Paul would go and preach, Paul also recognized it was really important to send letters. Now, if you think of it this way in the modern context, Paul was basically using modern technology to ensure that the message would go out. So in our world, we'd you know, throw up a website. Uh, we'd use Instagram, we'd go on Facebook, we'd post events and information, someone would write a book. It was, it's, it's very cheap to do something like that in, t- in today's world. In Paul's world, he was actually investing not only time, uh, energy, but also money into this very modern form, obviously very ancient form in our day, but very modern form of information communication in his day to, in order to get the word out. So imagine it costs a lot of money, costs a lot of time on Paul's behalf, But it was so important to Paul to make sure that these churches that he planted throughout the entire world, the ancient Roman Empire world, that they were able to basically be taken care of. Paul was a good pastor. He loved his flock. He loved the people. Even though Paul uh, was not able to be there with them in person, Paul would then write these letters to them. So um, Paul would do this very often. In fact, most of the New Testament, 
like uh, we have these little books, these little uh, books like Philippians or Galatians. Every single one of these are actually called epistles. And if you have no clue what an epistle is, epistle is just simply another way of basically saying a letter. These were actually letters. And so once they would receive these letters, they would sit down and they would read them. Um, just like you would imagine with, with anybody's letter. So when we've read through this, again, like I said, when I, when I, meant, I meant that, like we actually are reading someone else's uh, mail. And what they would have done is they would have sat down in that community and just read through the entire thing from start to finish. Uh, in the original, there were no chapter divisions. There were no verses. So some of you are like, well, how would you find like Ephesians 2.10? Like, you wouldn't. There, there was, you just didn't. You read through the whole thing. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be picking it apart like that. You would just read through the entire letter in one sweep. And that's what they would do. They would sit down and read it. In fact, most of the people actually were illiterate um, in the ancient world. And so you would have somebody that would probably read that letter to the people. And they would all sit around very intently listening to the message or the letter that was written to them or read to them uh, both uh, by the messenger. So this was kind of an amazing thing when you just think about this. This is what would have been happening. So when we're talking about the letter to the Ephesians here, like what we had just read, they would have gathered around and read through this entire letter um, and just been ministered to and encouraged by the words that Paul had written to them. They would have felt Paul's love. They would have been uh, built up and strengthened in their faith and their confidence wherever they were at. Um, it's one of the reasons why we encourage people to read the Bible because it's intended to bring about our encouragement. So this is the very first thing that I think in terms of reading this and understanding this is what's happening. But as I was reading through this sort of latter part of the passage that we just read, I was trying to ask myself and kind of envision what would it have been like for those early Christians living in Ephesus, which Ephesus, by the way, was this fantastic city. Um, it was one of the, it, it actually housed one of the ancient wonders, uh, uh, seven ancient wonders of the ancient world. And this absolutely massive, big city, kind of be equivalent to like a modern day Seattle or San Francisco or Los Angeles. Um, and it was this amazing city. And so there was in this city, which was actually known for its pagan temple, was a pocket of believers who followed Jesus. That's to whom Paul was writing. So when they would have received this letter, I was trying to think about like what, what, would, what would have grabbed their attention? What would have impacted them? Uh, what would have stood out to them? as they were in the process of not only receiving this letter, but then also hearing the letter unpack. And that's kind of what I want to sort of summarize in some thoughts this morning. So the first thing that I think about that would have grabbed their attention, first of all, would have been the messenger. And this guy's name, I actually pronounce it Tychicus, which is actually not the right way to pronounce it. And I don't know. I I do know the right way to pronounce it, but I'm not going to pronounce it because it's one of those words that has like that... You know, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, sometimes Hebrew or even Greek has language like that or words like that. And I'm not going to pronounce that because I'm not going to make a fool of myself. But, um, so I'm just pronouncing it Tychicus um, for the sake of easiness. Um, but the word Tychicus and the name Tychicus actually appears only five times in the New Testament. So we don't really know a lot about this guy. But what's really important is that this guy is actually a deliverer of a message. So imagine someone come walking in here uh, from a whole other city, they can walk in there like, hey, I'm from such and such a place, and I got a message for you to share with you. Like, what would be the first thought that would come through your mind? Like, most of us, if you're anything like me, like, I can't speak on behalf of you, but if you're anything like me, you'd be suspicious and cynical and be like, who are you? Like, I don't know who you are. I've never met you before. I don't even think you have a Facebook profile. I'm going to check you out even if you do. Uh, like, like, we would not receive them. And so, 
probably would have been the same way in the ancient world, even though they were very much so given hospitality. But this guy, Tychicus, would have walked in with this letter, vellum or parchment or whatever it was that this was actually written on. And he would have said, I have this letter from Paul. Now, most of the people there in that church uh, would have even been in one of three camps. They would have either, either completely known who Paul was because they were there when Paul planted the church, or they had known who Paul was because they heard about Paul because uh, people who were sharing, they talked about Paul's teachings and message, and so they would have felt like they kind of had some familiarity with who Paul was. Or thirdly, they would have not known Paul was at all. Like, Paul who? Uh, maybe like third, fourth generation Christians they had no idea who actually Paul was or how the church actually was planted or how things actually got going there in the city of Ephesus. So this guy, Tychicus, would have walked in and been like, I got a, I got a letter from the Apostle Paul. To some, this would have been like, wow, this is awesome. I can't wait to hear what Paul has to say. Others are like, curious, this is interesting. Others would be like, ho-hum, so what? But the point of the matter is, is that they sit down and begin to read it. So there's a level of interest, no doubt, in the hearts and the minds of all these people to try to figure out and understand what's going on. So I think, first of all, what would have been interesting to them or how they would have received it, one would have been and had something to do with the messenger. I think this is one of the reasons why actually Paul, to some degree, defends who Tychicus is. So did you guys pick up on that? So take a look at verse 21 again. Paul actually writes, uh, not necessarily in defense, but sort of in commendation of this guy Tychicus. Here's what he says again. He says, so that you also may know how I am and how I am doing. Tychicus, my beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. And then here's what Paul says, really important words, verse 22. I have sent him to you for this very purpose. So in other words, this, this would have been very significant. This would have been like a letter of recommendation for this no-name, anonymous guy that is actually vested with this really important message. Now, I want you to think about this for a second, because the amount of energy, time, technological investment, financial investment, emotional investment that went into this letter. Think about that. Somebody had to throw the bills down to invest in this modern form of technology. Somebody had to invest in the writing this out. And obviously Paul would have done that. Paul would have had also people with him to help him write this thing down. It would have been called an emuensis. They would have kind of, Paul would have dictated. They would have written this down. Somebody had to invest their time and energy into carrying this letter. Um, some believe this was probably from Rome to Ephesus. That would have been a fairly long journey in that day. So just think about the investment of time, energy, resources, money, uh, Tampering with technology, recognizing, not being afraid of technology, but embracing technology, even though technology may have been expensive, may have been challenging. Paul says, we're going to do this because we've got to get this message, this letter to these Ephesian people. How thankful we are because we have this letter today in our hands because Paul had this amazing vision from God to invest in this. So I want you to think about that because these people would have been sitting there. When they received this letter, it would have meant something to them. They would have sensed, like, wow, like, Paul's gone through a lot. This must be a really important message that we want to pay attention to. I say that because a lot of us, if you're like me, we've got, like, I mean, for me, probably dozens of Bibles. Like, dozens of Bibles. All right? Some of you are, like, one or two, three, four, half a dozen. Um, But the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter how many Bibles we have. What really matters is how much interest do we actually have in God's word? See, here's, here's my great fear, is that 
it's amazing living in a world filled with technology, filled with information, filled with sound bites. But the problem is, is that we tend to treat all information on even level. Which means we take things that are really important and we shrink them down to things that are really stupid that get shrunk up. Does that make sense? So things like God's word, messages from God, the word of God, God speaking to us basically gets drowned out in white noise. It doesn't hit us. It doesn't impact us. It doesn't connect with us. Another word for that is we get bored. We get bored. We get bored with God's word. We get bored with God. So here's Paul writing this message, sending it out, going through all this effort and energy, time, energy, uh, effort to get this to these people. And these people sit around. They listen to it. They read it. They pour over it. They want to hear what Paul has to say. But they also, Paul realizes they have, they have to make sure that they receive the message from the messenger. So Paul basically defends the messenger. And he describes him uh, in this phrase by saying he is a faithful minister. He's a faithful minister. The word minister is also a Greek word where we get the English word deacon from. Um, It basically means a servant. It's a word that can also be uh, interpreted or translated in the ancient world to mean a a waiter. So if you think of somebody in a restaurant waiting tables, that's actually the word that they would have used back then. So Paul described this guy, uh, Tychicus, as a faithful minister. And there's three things I kind of notice with regard to what it looks like to be a faithful servant or a faithful minister uh, in this context. I mean, there's a lot of more things that we can say about this, but these are just three things that I notice here in the context. One, uh, we see that really kind of a faithful minister is one who says what they're supposed to say. So Tychicus is given a message. Tychicus, in order to be a faithful minister, has to convey and communicate the message the way it was given to him. So in other words, the opposite would be that Tychicus is not given the uh, opportunity uh, to edit that message. Uh, it's, it's not okay for him to be like, well, I think Paul said this, but I'm going to change it because I prefer if Paul would have said this. Like, that, that, that would not be a faithful message, messenger. But a faithful messenger is one that basically delivers clearly what they've been given. Another thing I think about this guy, Tychicus, in terms of being a faithful messenger, is that they, in, in, for, his, for his case, is that he went where he was, to, he was supposed to go. In other words, he knew where his location was, he knew what was given to him, he knew what his sphere of influence was, and he went to it. It involved, in this case, going somewhere, being somewhere, and recognizing that wherever he was sent, that was his place of being a faithful servant with what he was given. Third thing, I think, is that he did what he was supposed to do. In this case, Paul says, he's here to encourage you. So the message that he gives is there for a specific purpose, to bring encouragement. And when I think about this in terms of our lives, in terms of what it means to be a faithful messenger or a faithful servant, the fact of the matter is is that all of us, we all serve somebody, something, some ideal. Some of us are like, I don't serve anybody except myself. But do you realize that sometimes we can be our own worst slave masters? So so that, that doesn't help you any more or any less to be like, well, I'm a slave to myself. Because sometimes we can be our worst critics. It's one of the reasons why maybe sometimes you are always feeling overwhelmed because you are not even living up to your own standards. You are failing your own self. But the reality is that we all serve somebody, like Prophet Bob Dylan said. We all serve somebody. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but the point of the matter is, I'm not going to sing it for you, we all serve something, some ideal, somebody. 
And the reality is, this is a big deal, especially to Jesus, because Jesus actually says, often, that there will be those that will come before God, and to some, God will say, enter into my rest, because you are a faithful servant. Others, Jesus will say, God will say to them, you weren't a faithful servant. See, the Bible basically describes it this way. Every single one of us, beginning with Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, you want to think of it this way, they were basically given a commission by God to be faithful to God. They were basically given partnership with God. They image God or represent God, and they were to represent God in the garden, which then that garden was to be uh, manipulated or cultivated or moved or mobilized to become a city. And their job, by God's tasking, was to partner with God to create something beautiful. But rather than doing it God's way, Adam and Eve basically began to distrust God, took matters into their own hands, and rather than entering into partnership with God, they basically broke partnership with God. And this brought about ruin. This brought about brokenness in their life. So we oftentimes believe these lies. We're like, I don't need God to do what I want to do in my life. And the fact of the matter is, one of the reasons why we delude ourselves into thinking that way is because we look at our lives, to some degree we see some measure of success. But give time to that, quote-unquote, measure of success. At some point, it will begin to fray and corrupt and break apart. And when it breaks apart, frays and corrupts, if your heart is invested in that, you will fray, break, and corrupt with it. It's one of the reasons why Jesus says, you can gain the whole world and have everything that your heart longs for in this life and yet lose your soul. You were made by God to reflect him, to partner with him, to be part of relationship with him. And we will serve faithfully someone. We will either faithfully serve God and his kingdom and his life that he gives us, or we will faithfully serve some other form of ideal or concept or ourselves. But at some point, those things that we serve other than God, will end up breaking. And when they break, we'll break with them. It's one of the reasons why Jesus comes to rescue us, to save us from our little dreams that we oftentimes, the way that Jesus describes it, we basically are way too easily satisfied. We give in far too quickly, and we devote ourselves to less things that are lesser, lesser in value, lesser in longevity, lesser in length. And what basically we see here is that this guy, Tychicus, was his faithful servant. We don't know anything about him other than the fact that he was just this faithful servant. I, I love that about this story of this guy in the Bible. It's just like otherwise totally unknown guy other than his name and that Paul loved him and that he was an absolutely faithful servant of God. I love that. And his name's in the Bible forever. What a great deal is that. So this is what we see with this guy, Tychicus. He was his messenger. So there's no doubt these guys would have, first of all, noticed Tychicus. They would have been suspicious. And then they would have read this little section right here. And they would have been like, okay, he's, he's good. Paul loves this guy. Paul commends him as being a faithful servant. Second thing I notice and I think about that uh, would have probably been going through their mind when they had read this and when they received this letter would have been the tone. I think they would have, uh, secondly, been amazed by the tone of the message or the tone of the general theme of the letter. And there's always a danger, I think, in terms of kind of like uh, refining or breaking this down. Um, but I think it's safe to say that the tone, the general tone of the message is one throughout that's warm, that's warm-hearted, that's kind-hearted. Um, Paul's not angry, in other words. I mean, there are times when Paul's frustrated. I mean, you can read passages in the book of Corinthians, and you can tell that Paul's really mad. The book of Galatians is kind of Paul's like 
rebuke. He's frustrated. I mean, he's like, you can tell he's frustrated with some people. But the point of the matter is, is this letter is actually really kind and warm-hearted. So they would have picked up on that, no doubt. And they would have picked up on that by some of the terms and words that are actually used. So, for example, um, there are these, like, uh, family-like references throughout the entire book. Uh, here's just a couple of them. So Paul actually refers to this guy, Tychicus, as his beloved brother. He doesn't say beloved partner, beloved friend. Uh, he describes him as a faithful servant, but he actually refers to him as a beloved brother. So Paul actually uses family-like language to describe Tychicus. He's like a brother. He is a brother. There's a, there's a bond, there's a closeness, uh, family type of relationship. He also refers to God throughout the entire letter. Uh, not as God the creator, though he is. Not as God the you know, commander of the armies, though he is. Not as God the you know, master architect of all things, though he is. But he refers to God as Father. Paul is peeling back the layers and saying, whatever it is that you thought about God before, don't lose sight of that, but add to it. Add to it a revelation that shows you, reveals to you, the fact that this, this God is like a dad. He loves you. Ephesians 1, Paul actually starts the whole letter out like this. I'll read just a couple little passages to kind of get a flavor of this. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, faithful in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul immediately wants to shape the mindset of the Ephesian people to help them to think about God, to cultivate in their mindset and understanding of God as a father within a familial type of a form. One of the things we've been saying all along for the past several weeks, at least, maybe even past several months, is how you view God will absolutely shape how you progress, how you act as a Christian, how you live as a Christian in this world, or whether or not you are a Christian in this world. How you view God. See, this is the big mystery throughout all time because everybody's been speculating. I'm reading a book on philosophy, and and I love philosophy, and the thing that's amazing to me about philosophers is really this was the big subject matter of philosophers throughout the ages. It was like, you know, what's the big uniformed thing that's kind of keeping everything going, that's causing everything to tick, everything united? What, What is it? Or is it divided? What is it? But the reality is, is every human being throughout all ages have speculated on the nature of who God is. What is God like? Is God angry? We've been saying this for the past couple of weeks. That, For example, one of the common myths about God is that, for the most part, a lot of people in America, I would say, it, think of God maybe as kind of, in your relationship to God, as God's kind of like this angry, frustrated, uh, very temperamental landlord of, of the apartment complex in which you are not a, not a resident, but a squatter. All right, you are the resident squatter. You guys know what squatters are, right? Someone who's living in a room, uh, you weren't invited, you weren't asked, nobody knows that you're actually there. You're not paying rent. If you are paying rent, it's very minimal. It's not even actually covering the bills. So in your mind, if you think of God as this really angry, frustrated, easily angered landlord in which you're a squatter on his property, you will never walk into his apartment joyfully and pour out your heart to him. In fact, they're quite the opposite. You will do everything you can to avoid eye contact, to make sure that you're not on the same floor as him, to run from him, that if he is there, you'll try to avoid him until you get money. And then you get money, and you're like, I need to go try to make friends with him. Again, you're trying to relate to God in this like business type of a scenario, and at some point, it will fail you. 
And the alternative is far better. Jesus says, God is your dad. How about that? He's not a landlord. He's not angry with you. He's not looking to evict you. He loves you. He's like a father. And so where Paul kind of elaborates and unpacks this grand narrative, this grand theme that God actually invites people into his family. So the, the, the tone of Paul's message throughout is one of familial type of a nature, like family. And that means that, that those that are in Christ, those that have come to Jesus, those that have received and have uh, been accepted really the, the plan that Jesus is unpacking and unfolding by faith, the way Paul describes it, are actually adopted into God's family. And what that means is that not only does God become your father, meaning you can actually go to God, not have to run from him, not have to shield yourself from him. You don't have to flee him. You can actually press into him, run to him, because you know his disposition towards you is one of love, not anger. Do you understand that if you, that's that one sentence right there, if you, all you heard to this morning is just that sentence, that will change you? You understand that? If you simply accept the fact that God's disposition towards you because of, through Jesus, is a disposition of love, acceptance, forgiveness that's offered, that will set you free. It will set you free from this endless treadmill that you're on of trying to make God happy, trying to please God, trying to run from him because you're not sure if he's happy or not. It will actually set you free. And that freedom is what Jesus describes as salvation. Where Paul says, you will be adopted into God's family if you see what God has done for you in, through Jesus, and receive that will change you. But it also goes on from that because not only does God become your father, but you also begin to begin to see that the family broadens, that there is a, there's a family, there's a church family. That means that uh, that's what Paul impacts throughout the entire book of Ephesians, is that this family is so big and broad and vast, bigger than what you can ever even imagine. See, the context, to some degree, I think is important, because Judaism, for the most part, was kind of uh, a very um, exclusive type of uh, religion, for the most part. In fact, there are certain sects within Judaism that were very elitist. Um, in order for you to get into some of those certain sects, you had to kind of pass all sorts of forms of inspection, of, 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 of learning, of education, and ultimately, first, uh, foremost, um, circumcision, which, especially if you're an older convert coming over into Judaism, that's a horrific thought. So here you are, like, mid-20s, they're like, okay, uh, it's time for you to do the final initiation into our team, drop your pants. You're like, uh... Is there any other way that we can do this? Nope, this is it. Like, you guys are really into the knife. Like, yes, we are. It's a sign that we love God. You're like, oh, gosh. Paul is basically saying, in Christ, at that table, that family table, are Jew and Gentile, meaning circumcised and the uncircumcised. Free people, people that have the money, people that are on the top of the food chain, people that have the wealth, people that move the wealth, and also those that have none of the wealth, that have no power, that are the least of the least. They are the scum of the earth. At that table, that table humanizes all people. And it's Paul's way of saying this is what the gospel does. It liberates us from our past. It liberates us from our 
pomp and our arrogance and our sin and our defilement and brokenness because it invites us to a table that we do not deserve to be at, and yet we are welcomed and invited to come, and we are treated with dignity, value, and respect. This is what that table is all about. And at that table, we have brothers and sisters, and at that table, we will offend brothers and sisters, and we will be offended by brothers and sisters. But at the same time, there's healing. We've been given the tools to bring about healing. I tell people this oftentimes because sometimes I think people come to Christianity, especially from a world filled with hurt, where the rules, for the most part, in the world are dog eat dog. If someone hurts you, you hurt them back. If somebody is vindictive to you, you are vindictive twice as much back to them. If someone steals from you, you steal back from them. It's like bloodlust out there. Sometimes it's like bloodlust in here. But the point of the matter is, I tell people, because they can have these false pretenses by coming into the church like, oh, great, I'm going to go hang out with Christians and my life will finally, for the most part, be better because I'll be around people that are nice. Fact of the matter is, guys, the church will let you down. We will let you down. We will hurt you. We will step on your toes. You will step on our toes. We will offend you. You will offend us. That's the way it is. That's the way it is in a family. But within a family, you have the tools to forgive to be reconciled, to be healed. This is what the gospel equips us with. This is why it's so important to understand that the rules that are, for the most part, omitted in the world or that get glossed over uh, within the church are part of the actual fabric of it. It's what makes the church whole and real. So Paul no doubt writes a lot about this family type of nature because this is what God does. So that's the tone of the message. And finally, uh, we see the, really the content of message that Paul is speaking. No doubt this probably would have floored the people there in Ephesus because, again, a lot of ways, people in Ephesus, they would have been very familiar with uh, a society that was ordered and organized based upon the haves and the have-nots, who's in, who's out, the rich and the poor, the whatever predominant uh, majority ethnic culture was, Versus whatever minority culture, ethnic, uh, ethnic culture was. And that the haves had it all, they had the power, they had space at the table, and the have-nots weren't. <laughs> There's was no hope for them. But the hope of the gospel was that at the table of the Lord, there's a place for everybody. The haves, the have-nots. The people who've got power, the people who are powerless, the people of Majority race, ethnicity, the people of minority race, ethnicity, they're all welcomed and invited at this table. And this is what Paul is basically communicating. So this content that no doubt would have floored them was this constant theme of grace, peace, and love. And you see this again. Take a look at verses 23 to 24 and I'll wrap this up. He says this, uh, peace to those, to the brothers, and love with faith. From God the Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ, and again, the phrase Lord Jesus Christ actually uses twice. Uh, the word Lord Jesus Christ, the word Lord basically um, is a word that describes uh, who he is. Um, uh, he's Lord, he's God. Jesus was his name, um, and Christ basically is another word, which anytime you read the word Christ, could also carry with it the idea of a king. Like, Christ is king, that Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what he's saying, is that this Lord Jesus Christ, what he's come and what he's done is he's brought this grace, peace, and love. And now what we're doing, what Paul is really saying is that we live within this economy, this world in which grace, peace, and love has defined God's kingdom. 
And we live in a world that, for the most part, every single one of us, we want to live in that experience of grace, peace, and love. And so what we do oftentimes is that rather than trying to find grace, peace, and love that comes from God, we look in alternative, counterfeit sources. And so what we often do is we settle for these sort of synthetic versions of grace, peace, and love. And the grace that we settle for oftentimes ends up at some point making great demands of us of which we are not able to pay out, which in other words, it really proves it for what itself is. It's not really grace after all. It's just another form of manipulated works. The peace that we're oftentimes longing for, looking for, ends up caving in on itself and breaking apart. And when it breaks apart, we break apart with it. The love that we hope, meaning love truly being accepted and affirmed and cared for in spite of who we are, oftentimes either ends up whereby we share who we are and then we get rejected. It's one of the reasons why we keep secrets. If you're here this morning and you have lots of secrets, we all do. Uh, One of the reasons why we hold on to those secrets is because we are absolutely afraid that if we let these secrets out, people will reject us. So what we do is we hold on to these secrets and we fail to really be our real selves. And so therefore we are just as plastic as the lives we're living. But the gospel message is that there is grace, true grace, God gives to you regardless of who you are, what you deserve, how broken, how defiled, what you have or do not have to pay. There's space for you at the table. Peace at that table. It's not just simply a cessation of chaos. Peace in the uh, Hebrew mindset would have been far greater. It would have been the idea, the word that they actually use is shalom. The idea of peace is that everything is coming together. It's humming, it's working together, it's harmonizing. In other words, Things that were meant to be working together in this world are not working together. In peace, they all work together. Everything harmonizes. Everything comes together. And then love. This is the love that God gives. Is that we have a God that we can completely share our deepest, darkest, most defiling, most embarrassing secrets. And the most shocking thing He's not shocked. He receives us. He cleanses us. He washes us. He gives us place at that table and says, eat. And says, be healed. This is the God that we have. So the question that I want to finish with is, how do we know this? How can we be confident of this? Because at the end of the day, the reason why a guy like Tychicus can be such a faithful servant, the reason why Paul can actually be such a faithful servant is because What led all of this is that Jesus was a faithful servant. Jesus comes into this world as a faithful servant. He rightly, beautifully, perfectly reveals the message of God. He doesn't edit it, doesn't shape it, doesn't change it. He says, everything I say is a reflection in obedience to my Father. Jesus comes, and he does exactly what God wants him to do. Jesus knows his place. He sees the sphere, the world in which he's come to save. Look, to the degree that you see what Jesus has done for you as the faithful servant, for you, you begin to realize that the counterfeit forms of grace and peace and love that we're oftentimes so eagerly looking for and giving ourselves and investing our energy and our time our emotion, our affections for in this world that at some point will implode and break apart. And when it breaks apart, we break apart with it. To the degree that we see that Jesus has done this for us, that his grace, his peace, his love 
It's not cheap. It's not synthetic. In fact, it's extremely costly. You say, what did it cost God to give us this? It cost God everything. That's what the cross is. It was the price that our God paid to save us. It was the price our God put out there for all the world to see what the cross is. It's God coming into this world, not abandoning us in our brokenness, us in our chaos as opposed to shalom, us in our death as opposed to life. It's God not turning from us, from this scene of the crime. It's God coming into the midst of it, knowing full well the price that it would incur upon him. Death. Crushing to his son. Why? Why would he do this instead of run and turn and go away and abandon? Which is what's common in our world. It's what most of us would do. Why? The answer is, loves you. To the degree that you see that he loves you, that begins to shape us and change us. It opens our heart to receive the message like Ephesians that Paul preaches and proclaims. It opens our heart to receive the message the way the Ephesians would have received this message that Paul would have written to them. It's my prayer that as we finish and close, that we would respond to God like this. Because at the end of the day, we're going to serve somebody, something, some ideal. The question I would ask you, is what you are serving faithfully serving you back? Is it actually meeting your needs? Some degree, some of you might right now might be like, well, yeah, it's doing great right now. But long term, we'll still be there 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 40 years from now, 50 years from now. If the claims of the Bible are true, will it still be there for you a million years from now? What the message of the gospel is, it's an invitation to come, to trust your creator who loves you. He's not angry. He's not mad. He hates our sin. Don't misunderstand that. But he loves us, and he wants to remove that which is crushing and destroying us. This is what the cross is all about. I want to finish by a quote. I'm going to have the worship team come on up, and we'll wrap this up. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis. Um, Great quote, and here's what he says. Your real new self will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come only when you are looking for or to Christ. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself. And you will find, in the long run, only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. This is the message of the Bible. If we search and give our energy to pursuing our own lives, you may gain it. Just like Jesus says, what profit is to gain a person to gain the entire world and yet lose their soul? But if you're willing to lose all of that in exchange, pursue Christ, what you have in you are the seeds of resurrection, the seeds of life, the seeds of newness, the seeds of wholeness, the seeds of healing, the seeds of grace, shalom, and love. I'm going to pray. Why don't we all stand and we'll sing. Singing is our response to God. We have communion in the back. It's a way for us to remember by Partaking the bread and dipping it in the cup. Don't pick up the cup, by the way. Like if you're new here, like, do I just pick it up? No, just dip the bread in there. Um, it's a way for us to be reminded of the fact that uh, that bread is broken. It's a, sim- a 
it's a symbol of the fact that the whole God, God is whole, uh, became broken. In order for us who are broken, can be made whole. That's the, that's the symbol. So as you eat that bread, I want you to think about the cost that your God endured on your behalf in being broken for you. We'll have some people off to the side by the cross that want to pray for you. If you have anything that's going on in your life, you pray. So let's let's say.